Hello and welcome to the last Annals of Internal Medicine Highlights Podcast of 2021. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in the journal since our last podcast. In October 2020, Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians hosted our first COVID-19 forum with panelists Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. David Kessler, Dr. Beth Bell, and Dr. Rachel Levine. The discussion focused on the COVID-19 vaccines that were on the horizon, but not yet approved. At that time, we did not anticipate that the pandemic would continue through 2021, and there would be a need for continuing this forum over a year later. Unfortunately, SARS-CoV-2 is a stubborn virus, and alphabet variants have emerged, testing remains suboptimal, and pandemic fatigue and reliance on misinformation have resulted in too many people choosing not to adhere to public health recommendations and vaccination. The body of knowledge about SARS-CoV-2 that researchers have amassed since early 2020 is remarkable. Yet as we learn more, new questions emerge. On December 8, 2021, Annals and ACP convened infectious disease experts to address current challenging clinical questions. Annals Deputy Editor Dr. Deborah Cotton moderated the discussion, and guest panelists included Dr. Sabrina Asimu from Boston University, Dr. Judith Currier from University of California, Los Angeles, and Dr. Jean Marazzo from University of Alabama, Birmingham. The panelists reviewed current knowledge about the Omicron variant, the importance of widespread vaccination, emerging therapies, and persisting symptoms following acute SARS-CoV-2 infection. Go to the multimedia link at the top of the annals.org homepage to find this most current program and the six previous ones. All are publicly available for viewing and accompanied by an opportunity to earn CME and MOC credit. The next new material to highlight is a systematic review and individual patient-level meta-analysis that suggests that modifying D-dimer thresholds for suspected acute pulmonary embolism according to age or pretest probability is efficient and safe enough for widespread practice, even in groups at high risk for a blood clot. Next is a new Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds, which features a general internist and critical care physician discussing the treatment of a hospitalized patient with community-acquired pneumonia. 1.5 million Americans are hospitalized every year for complications related to community-acquired pneumonia. Of those patients, 200,000 die within 30 days of hospitalization. To establish the prognosis and treatment of these patients when hospitalized, several guidelines have been established to assist clinicians. Discussants Dr. Josh Metley, a general internist, and Dr. Ari Moskowitz, a pulmonary and critical care physician, debated the management and treatment of a 75-year-old man diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia who had several comorbid conditions, including restrictive lung disease. The man was also hospitalized 100 days prior with another episode of pneumonia. In their discussion, Dr. Mantley and Moskowitz disagree about the usefulness of the IDSA-ATS guideline in this patient's case. Dr. Mantley argues the superiority of the guideline and would not classify the patient's condition as severe because he only meets two minor criteria. Dr. Moskowitz argues that the binary nature and similar weighting of the guideline's criteria do not accurately weigh some of the minor criteria that are more predictive of mortality. They disagree about the use of corticosteroids as an appropriate treatment for the patient's condition. Doctors Mentley and Moskowitz also disagree on the decision to treat the patient for methicillin-resistant staph aureus and pseudomonas aeruginosa, 
Dr. Metley recommends cultures to identify the presence of these organisms before beginning treatment, while Dr. Moskowitz would begin administering antibiotics in light of the patient's previous hospitalization and comorbid conditions. All Beyond the Guidelines features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and include print, video, and educational components published on annals.org. Moving back to COVID-19, the next article reports a study that aimed to determine longitudinal antibody-based response and risk for breakthrough infection following SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in 4,791 patients receiving dialysis. Plasma left over from routine monthly laboratory tests was used to measure qualitative and semi-quantitative antibodies to the receptor binding domain of SARS-CoV-2. To evaluate whether peak or pre-breakthrough antibody values were associated with breakthrough infection, a nested case control analysis matched each breakthrough case to five controls by age, sex, and vaccination month and adjusted for diabetes and area of residence. Of the 4,791 patients followed with monthly assays, 2,563 completed vaccination as of September 14, 2021. Among the vaccinated patients, the proportion with an undetectable antibody response increased from 6.6% 14 to 30 days post-vaccination to 20.2% after five months. Median index values declined from 92.7, four to 30 days post-vaccination, to 3.7 after five months. Patients with SARS-CoV-2 infection prior to vaccination had higher peak index values than patients without prior infection, but values equalized by five months. Breakthrough infections occurred in 56 patients. In the nested case control analysis, lower peak and pre-breakthrough antibody values were associated with higher odds for breakthrough infection. These data show that the antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 vaccination wanes rapidly in persons receiving dialysis, and the antibody response following vaccination was associated with risk for breakthrough infection. The topic of this month's In the Clinic Review is smoking cessation. Although tobacco use in the United States has been cut in half since 1965, it remains the principal cause of preventable disease, with an estimated 480,000 premature deaths per year, and accounts for more than $289 billion in healthcare expenditures and productivity losses. Even today, 14% of adults and 4.6% of high school students smoke cigarettes. However, when all tobacco products are included, the prevalence of use is 20.8% and 23.6% respectively. In 2020, the most commonly used tobacco products by high school students were electronic cigarettes with 8.2% of students using multiple tobacco products. Although these data highlight an increasingly challenging landscape for clinicians, 68% of adult smokers in the U.S. have a desire to quit. However, many physicians report inadequate training in tobacco treatment and slightly less than half of adult smokers who visited a healthcare professional in the past year received advice to quit smoking. Go to annals.org to read the In the Clinic Review to refresh your knowledge about effective strategies for helping patients who smoke tobacco products to quit. Next is an update of a living systematic review addressing ventilation techniques and risk for transmission of COVID-19. Unfortunately, the topic remains timely as many hospitals across the U.S. and around the world see rising COVID-19 caseloads. The review previously found that non-invasive ventilation may have similar effects to invasive mechanical ventilation on mortality in COVID-19 patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, and that high-flow oxygen by nasal cannula may reduce mortality compared to no high-flow nasal cannula oxygen. 
The new evidence did not change the initial conclusions that non-invasive ventilation may have at least as similar effects as invasive mechanical ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula oxygen may reduce mortality. The low certainty of evidence suggests the need for high-quality studies. In addition, the authors identified at least six relevant ongoing trials. Future reviews should focus on these trials to provide conclusions with more certainty. Moving to articles published on December 21st. To estimate the effectiveness of mRNA COVID-19 vaccines in a real-world, diverse, elderly population with high comorbidity burden, the authors of the next article conducted a trial emulation study comparing vaccinated to matched unvaccinated persons in the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs healthcare system. Among nearly 6 million persons receiving care in the VA system, over 2 million received at least one dose of Moderna or Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine between December 11, 2020 and March 25, 2021. These persons were matched to unvaccinated controls in a one-to-one -one ratio according to demographic and clinical characteristics and geographic location. Follow-up for documented SARS-CoV-2 infection or SARS-CoV-2-related death, defined as death within 30 days of infection, began after the vaccination date or an identical index date for the matched unvaccinated control. Vaccinated and unvaccinated groups were well-matched with respect to age, sex, race, ethnicity, and comorbidity burden. Vaccine effectiveness more than seven days after the second vaccine dose was 58% against SARS-CoV-2 infection and 88% against SARS-CoV-2-related death. Vaccine effectiveness against infection decreased with increasing age and comorbidity burden. These data suggest that in this population of mostly male, older, racially, ethnically diverse persons with high comorbidity, COVID-19 vaccine effectiveness against infection was substantially lower than previously reported in trials, but effectiveness against mortality remained high. A surge in background checks for firearm purchases in the U.S. was observed beginning in March 2020, coincident with the official onset of the pandemic. The next article sought to describe who bought guns during the pandemic, what proportion were new gun owners, and whether these purchasers differed from pre-pandemic purchasers using a probability-based online survey conducted in April 2021. Survey weights generated nationally representative estimates. The survey suggests that 7.5 million adults, or 2.9% of U.S. adults, became new gun owners between January 2019 and April 2021. New gun owners during the pandemic resembled new gun owners in 2019 and were more likely to be female and non-white than other gun owners, both pre and during the pandemic periods observed in the study. Public health efforts that aim to reduce firearm violence should extend to non-gun owners who may be contemplating purchasing a firearm in the future. To inform these efforts, resources that routinely monitor the dynamics of gun ownership are urgently needed. Earlier analyses of the study reported in the next article showed that banlanivimab, a neutralizing monoclonal antibody given in combination with remdesivir, did not improve the outcomes among hospitalized persons with COVID-19. The final analysis reported in an article published on Annals.org on December 21st evaluated an a priori hypothesis that greater benefit of banlanivimab would be identified in those without detectable endogenous neutralizing antibody levels at study entry especially if viral levels were high. Hospitalized COVID-19 patients were randomized to receive bamlanivimab or placebo and followed for 90 days for sustained recovery. 
Among 314 participants, 163 on Bamla and Nivimed, and 151 on placebo, the median time to sustained recovery was 19 days and did not differ between groups. However, sustained recovery after administration of Bamla-Nibavad versus placebo differed by the presence of neutralizing antibodies at study entry and was greater among those without neutralizing antibody and markers of elevated viral replication at presentation. Over the past decades, new technologies have dramatically transformed day-to-day -day life for people of all ages. In 2000, only 14% of Americans over age 65 years reported using the internet. Today, this has surged to 75%. Many adults would be hard pressed to accomplish their goals without modern technology, smartphones, online shopping, ride sharing applications, and more have become ubiquitous parts of daily life. Despite this shift, we still chart the functional trajectories of older adults using the instrumental activities of daily living originally proposed in 1969. Next is a commentary that notes that, although the world has changed significantly, our metric for successful independent living remains stuck in the past, and the authors propose new tools to evaluate how our aging patients function within their homes and communities. Critical scientific questions about COVID-19 vaccines include whether the vaccine effect will wane over time, whether they will work on new variants, and whether booster shots are needed. As reports of the durability of vaccine protection become available, clinicians should be aware of a subtle issue known generally as frailty effects or in the vaccine literature as depletion of susceptibles bias. The issue discussed in the next article is that a study with higher and lower risk participants or risk heterogeneity can create an illusion of waning vaccine efficacy over time even when the effect of the vaccine on each individual is not changing or it can exaggerate the estimated magnitude of true individual waning vaccine efficacy. In a randomized trial, this heterogeneity is balanced at baseline between vaccinated and unvaccinated participants. A complexity arises when we want to evaluate how vaccine efficacy changes over time. Randomization creates two populations, vaccine and control, with the same proportions of frail and or high-risk individuals at the start of the studies but if the vaccine works, in the later periods there will be lower proportions of frail, high-risk individuals left in the control group who did not have the disease in the early periods. The article explains why this can result in the appearance of waning vaccine efficacy. The authors state, quote, unlike the start of the study, we are now comparing apples or higher-risk vaccinees to oranges or lower-risk controls, end quote. That brings us to the end of this podcast and the end of 2021. I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've mentioned and return in two weeks for the first podcast of 2022. In the meantime, wishing all a happy, healthy end of 2021. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.